This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Kia ora and welcome to Reserved Recommendations. This is a show about great trash, difficult art, and our complicated relationships with art and culture. My name's Hugh, I'm the host of the show, and I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a very mild content warning for the show as a whole. Sometimes our recommendations on this show are reserved just because the thing that we're discussing is in some way not good, but sometimes there are aspects of the art or artist that may be confronting for some people. Check the episode descriptions for more information, and do be aware of your listening environment. This evening, it gives me very great pleasure to welcome back returning champion Ross Palethorpe. How's it going? Kia ora. Yeah, oh, it's a pleasure to be back and talking about one of, um, I wouldn't say it's one of my favourite movies, but it's a movie I'm really fond of. So uh, yeah, a really good way to spend a Monday evening, I think. Wonderful. Yeah, so the movie we're talking about is Dark Star, which is 1974. I think that's correct. Yeah, um, and I get, my first thought because I I'd never seen it before. Uh, I watched it for the first time with with my wife, so I could talk about it with you. And my first thought was it's like um, it's almost like reading these guys' notebooks because it's yes. um, J. Uh, no, I keep getting the two J. C. filmmakers the wrong way around. <laughs> it's John Carpenter, not James Cameron. Um, yes. Although I could see why you would say James Cameron, actually. Yeah. So it's um, John Carpenter's student movie and Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, among a whole host of other things. And as you said, it's it's a real... I think one of the things that really gets me about this movie is, as a big science fiction and, and nerd, basically, I can't think of another way to put it, to see where a lot of the stylistic shorthand that you now get and have had in in science fiction films for such a long time to see where they've come from. And it's not 2001, a space odyssey. It's this little $60,000 student film that came out six years later and almost completely undid the, the sort of cinematic um, like narrative of how space could look in such a short space of time. I find it absolutely fascinating and revisiting it for this podcast. I mean, this is the first time I'd sat and watched it. And it must have been about 15 years. And you always have that fear of, here's a film that I remember from when I was younger and thought was absolutely phenomenal. And am I going to watch it again and think it sucked? Which I call the crow effect after trying to show someone the crow. After, oh, like, as I, well, an adult. I haven't revisited the crow. Uh, that was that was like the coolest thing in the world uh, at a particular point in my teenage years. So I dread to think. Um... Yeah. I, I was the same. I watched, I, I loved The Crow as a teenager. I was that goth, um, desperately trying to look like um, like Brandon Lee in that film. And then I remember showing it to, um, I think I was trying to show it to a girlfriend of mine as to, oh, this film is really good and you were going to love it. And I cringed. Like, I'm surprised I didn't collapse into myself and form like a tiny black hole. Such was the, the depths of my embarrassment. But watching, watching Dark Star again, and... So I watched it with my son. He's six. Um, not intentionally. I was just running out of time before before we recorded, and I was like, "If I don't watch it now, I'm not. I'm just not gonna." And um, it, it's the only John Carpenter movie I think you can watch with a six year old <laughs> and not scar them for life. Um, 
but it was I, I loved it. I, it really held up, and there was some themes in it and things which which were weirdly very timely, almost fifty years on. Yeah, it's it's that's the thing that I wanted to touch on because if you go and read like the Wikipedia article for this movie. It describes it almost like it's going to be kind of like a screwball comedy or something. It's like a satire of these guys who've begun to lose it after being isolated on a on a spaceship for a long time. And you could imagine something with that description being like, I don't know, like a... Um, I've forgotten the guy's name. You like Blazing Saddles, uh, right? But it, yeah. you could imagine it being that kind of. But it's actually it's got much more of. Um, I was getting like Joseph Heller vibes, like the way that it starts with the um, the video announcement from the guy back on Earth saying like, "You guys are great. We love you. No, we're not going to give you any more supplies." Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and and everything like they're they're stuck on this shitbox rickety death trap of a spaceship that's already killed one of the crew, and it's not going to get fixed because they can't be bothered, and also they don't have any spare parts, and no one's going to send them any. <laughs> um, yeah, like it's it's this real kind of grim like space is a shitty blue collar job thing, right? And I think. That that was so interesting to me. You have the so the film opens with this um, communication from Earth and this extremely professional looking guy talking to the crew of the Dark Star, and it's real. It was proper clap for our NHS, wasn't it? it yeah, was real. yeah. What, thoughts and prayers to our brave workers on the front line. We're not going to do anything to keep you safe. We're not going to do anything to address your real sort of health and safety concerns or do anything about the fact that a member, like a key member of the crew has already died. Um, we're not going to put in any radiation shielding. We hear, we, we hear your concerns, but you know, government cutbacks guys. And I just, I was sitting there thinking that, you know, I know that science fiction tells us as much about the present as it does about the, the time that people are predicting, but it was a real, like, I'm watching this in 2023, the film is nearly 50 years old at this point, and, oh, really touching on some nerves there. And, the, the, the like, the the contrast between this, um, like, the, the, the person in this video message, which is very... That's the satire of 2001, isn't it? Mm. Like, he's got the hair, he's got the diction, and then it cuts And he's wearing... To... It's, it, is he military or just in a very sharp suit? I can't remember. Yeah, it's it's a real sort of... Um, it's a real throwback to... I mean, they had just finished sending people to the moon at this point. This was a real callback to sort of the late 60s, um, you know, space program stuff. So you like if you had no idea what the film's about, you would you would think that that was setting up the tone. And then it's it cuts to the space hippies bickering in in a tin can. And it's such a jarring I mean we're used to it now, I think this idea of, of space travel, as you said, of being like the you watch the expanse or if you were growing up you watch Red Dwarf or, or all these other things. This idea of space as being this scuzzy, shitty um unpleasant place to live in but this was this was the first time we'd ever seen anything like that and it it's still it, it's still quite surprising yeah I, think. I i said to my wife like number one science fiction locations you can immediately smell just by yeah. looking at <laughs> like, yeah because if you if people haven't seen this movie the uh, where a lot of the action takes place is in the kind of central control room. Their job is to launch these bombs and blow up planets that are going to be in the way of some, like, 
it's like the idea is that humans will eventually colonize bits of space and we need to get these dangerous like rogue planets out the way but it's i feel like it's implied that that's probably not happening and these guys are just too much trouble to bring back but they sit in this control room where two of them face one way and the guy in the middle faces the opposite way and there's this triangle roof with with dials and buttons like right over their heads it's this tiny little triangular tin can and they're all like unkempt and they smoke in the spaceship and it's just like you can immediately just smell the stench of like unwashed dude and like decades of cigarettes right it's such a and i find that such a fascinating visual choice anyway again you know the the obvious comparison here so it was it was six years after 2001 a space odyssey it's a couple of years after silent running came out as well so there's this is right at the start of this um what is space travel going to look like and the the command center of this is is almost an identical like not, maybe not identical, but stylistically, it's very similar to what the Apollo command module looked like. Everyone's really cramped. Everyone's in these like ugly flight suits. It, it, it. As you said, you can almost smell it. And I think, in those respects, it's probably a closer idea of what early space travel and and going to the moon and things actually resembled than anything that we had seen from Clark or or Asimov. And I and I love it for that. Like these people are like there's there's no real sympathetic characters in here they're just you know what if space travel was just a bunch of guys like they bicker they have these um you know you can tell that they've been in each other's company for far too long like they've got nothing left to say to each other they're bored out of their minds they i think as you said like it's too much trouble to bring them back um they're at the whims of um, a government that has kind of forgotten about them. You know, there's a there's a class issue in here as well, if you really wanted to explore it. And- oh, absolutely. Um, and and one of them is, uh, this is what, the other thing that gave me Joseph Heller vibes. One of them is strongly implied to be the wrong guy. Like yeah. he was a fuel technician who got mistaken for an astronaut. And now he just can't get off the ship because he's been there for... They, they keep making light speed jumps, which means that their subjective time is different from real time. So in real time, they've been out there for like 20 years, uh, yeah. despite the fact they've been out there for like four subjective time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's So there's this real... Um, so Pinback, who's actually played by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, um, who's... And, and we'll get to the Alien in a minute. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, like he is... You know, he does this this video diary, which is also very, again, very prescient, very funny. Um, and he sort of makes this confession about how oh, I'm not really Sergeant Pinbacker. My name is Bill Frug, and I was a uh, I was a technician. And the actual Pinback, I watched him commit suicide and stole his uniform and came on board, and I have regretted it ever since. And I thought, um, you know, just but there's these, there's so much. It's such an I so densely packed with ideas like the film is an hour and 20 minutes long like there as i said there's there's class there's this idea of like futurism and and like industrial decay and um you know it's got some really deep philosophical themes in it and it and it just picks up these ideas and plays with them a little bit from and puts it down and from this this cheap ass movie there's 
like it really set the tone and um it, like the number of notes that i took i'm like oh this you you get this scene in aliens oh this bit's like straight from whatever and it's yeah and i think it because this is real sort of gold like the the new wave of hollywood like you know this is coming out the same year as as the godfather i think and it obviously it's not the godfather but that you really get that sense of here are a bunch of people who are being given an opportunity, like okay, a very homogenous bunch, let's be honest. But here's a bunch of people get who are, have the opportunity to create things that have not been created before, and what ideas can we throw out there? And it's exciting to watch in that respect. You really get the sense of people thinking, what can we do here? And I think a really big example of that is um, I did a bit of, of research on this that. The, the early scenes with the hyperdrive, that was the first time it had ever been depicted in cinema. And we still use, like, we still use that template today. That's... The spaceship stays still and all of the stars suddenly become like lines instead of points of light. This is where you see it first. That's exactly, that was the thing I really wanted to mention. That's kind of what I meant about seeing these guys' notes because Dan O'Bannon, as well as writing Alien, went on to do a bunch of special effects work for Star Wars. And he brought the camera trick that they used to do the hyperspace effect with them and that's that's how star wars ends up with that like it's it's such an iconic bit of star warsness that if you do it people think you're ripping off star wars um or 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 referencing star wars at least but but this is where it comes from yeah and it's you know we've already mentioned like star wars we've mentioned before alien the alien trilogy we've mentioned before um you know the idea even interstellar which came out you know, not that long ago, this idea of the people in the spaceship not aging particularly much, but everybody back home aging significantly. I mean, it's, I say it's it's so many ideas. You can see these guys, these students, just literally like exploding off the screen of what can we what can we create here? I mean, it was originally the student the original student short film cost five grand um, at the time. You know, which is absolute buttons and the. The quality of the special effects in this movie, they they really hold up, you know? Like, they really were super inventive with trying to create something that was really complicated. Yeah, like, the 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 strongest criticism you could come up from them is that the, like, the model work in space looks a little bit kind of not quite because they're still figuring out how to do it. But again, yeah. it's kind of like watching them come up with the notes for how to do the star destroyer scene in the first star wars like yeah this is like the first draft of that thing yeah yeah the shape of the dark star is very similar to a star destroyer like the idea of the bomb like that so the bomb so the bombs that they use to to blow up these planets are all have an artificial intelligence to them and the ship has an artificial intelligence which was then used uh, it was the template for mother in the original alien movie and um I was, like one of the things that really caught me watching this now, which I certainly wouldn't have picked up the first time I saw it, is this idea of the Internet of Things. Like the fact that the bombs are intelligent and have um, sort of like a, an AI is like, why would they need that? But also, why does your fridge need Wi-Fi? You know, like this idea of we can, we're going to make it like... Um, like automated and semi-intelligent for, for no reason whatsoever and how that comes ultimately destroy the ship spoiler you know sorry if i'm spoiling like a 49 year old movie for you (laughs) (laughs) yeah no um i i did want to talk about the bombs as well because that is uh 
the the whole process of blowing up the planets involves having a conversation with the with the artificial intelligence in the bomb who's knows that its job is to go and blow up and that's its goal in life and it uh, it it's a very kind of it's funny but it's quite uncanny as well it's um it's like the spookier bits of Douglas Adams somewhat like the yeah. you're talking to this really chipper little computer who's super happy to go and blow itself up yeah yeah this and this like they all have this very chipper um real sort of 19 19- Again, going back to that atomic age, 1950s, 1960s radio announcer, like it's a very specific time and place of an accent. And and they are a thermostellar device, which is a phenomenal name to give something. And, you know, you you witness this first explosion and the the hyper jump that they take to get away from it. And they explode, like I say, it, it looks really impressive for the time you know for the time and i think there's always something really quite engaging about those kinds of of practical special effects like i'd far rather watch that than um whatever marvel of 2023 would come up with to show that because it feels like it's got a bit of weight to it and um so the second bomb through a series of misadventures caused by cutbacks um refuses like it, it it gets a bit confused and it and it decides it's going to explode. And the way that that's dealt with is, is very clever and very pea-brained all at once and very, very 70s. Um, yeah, the, which, I mean, it, it also touches on a bit of kind of like existential horror that's kind of floating around the edge of the movie as well. So mm. what, what happens is that they end up with a bomb that's armed itself and is refusing to leave the bomb bay doors because of, yeah, essentially the ship's falling to bits and the system that's supposed to disconnect it doesn't work. And the computer has a long argument with the bomb and fails to convince it that it shouldn't blow up. So they, they're forced to resort to opening up the cold storage of the captain who's been dead since before the start of the movie and talking to him on this weird little microphone device. And it turns out that like a secret bit of the universe of the movie is that you can just talk to dead people. You can wake their consciousnesses up in cryo storage and talk to them. But they're like, I don't know. They're like, it's like they've had um, some sort of like degenerative dementia or something like they're like fraying away to nothing genuinely creepy scene yeah and another show of, of the kind of special effects that you can create on the smell of an oily rag so you know they've talked about that commander powell and this idea that he was the one that really kept everything together and he dies and like his chair blows up or something and and this create like there's a certain there's a real sense of like um discomfort around the fact that you know like bits of the ship can explode and and, and kill you uh, which would i think upset all of us and so Doolittle who sort of assumed command who throughout has been he's a man who has just taken on this all I'm here to do is to blow up planets I don't give a shit about anything else he comes across as very surly there's one scene with another crew member who has lost his mind in a different way and now just spends his entire time looking at the stars he has this little conversation with him about how he misses surfing and he wished he brought his board with him just so he could wax it every once in a while which was really for a character that has been very withdrawn and very grumpy to suddenly just share this little piece of himself 
again, it's another idea. It gets picked up and then, and then they move on. But he, he takes it upon himself. He's like, we're going to go down and talk to the captain. And, and the bit, the, the captain is genuinely chilling. Like, and I, and I don't mean that Justin is cryogenically frozen. Like eyes rolled back and say, it looks like a corpse and the way that it talks. And it, a thing that struck me about that was how do we know that's genuinely him and it's not just another AI? Like there's this real bleed through of, of what is consciousness and what is, you know, what is a human and what is not that again, you know, for a, for a film that's like, what if stoners in space is, is really quite deep. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I guess, I mean, this is a thing that's on, on my mind for reasons that we won't go into because it's outside the scope of the conversation, but like it does, it does really give me that, that, the the we don't know that it's necessarily him it might be something that thinks it's him but also he keeps talking about how much he's forgotten and and how hard mm. it is to keep track of things and and why don't people come and talk to him more often and, and and that bit's almost like a little bit petulant and it gives me very dementia e vibes in a way that's quite discomforting uh, as well as him being like a frozen corpse yeah yeah there's, there's you can really see the through line, I think, of, say, Dan O'Bannon's later work in horror, John Carpenter's, you know, like, if you haven't heard of John Carpenter, why are you listening to this podcast? But that real, like, again, these these ideas, some really chilling parts in that. And yeah, I really hear you on that, um, like, depiction of, of, of dementia yeah that petulance that forgetting where they are and having the conversation over again and it's but it's dealt with it, it's not dug into too far like they're they're on a time limit they're you know it's the, it's the classic race against time like you would get in aliens for example that real sense of um trying to get the answer out of someone who is not really capable of of giving it and how successful is that answer going to be anyway? So it's a real sense of they are completely out of options. But yeah, there's this so many little horrifying aspects to it, which taken as a whole, I think really get across how appalling and how dark their situation really is in a way that I can't really imagine. And I don't want to be like, oh, it's golden age of cinema and blah, blah, blah. But I really, I would struggle to think of another film that has this much impact that, that would have such a light touch with some of these things. Well, I mean, I, I guess if I was going to have a reserved recommendation about this movie, one of the things that struck me is that, and I think this is a, this is a, an artifact of its construction. Like it started as a $5,000 student film and then they got the chance to make it into a $60,000 feature film. And the way they did that was by adding a whole bunch of stuff to what was already there. Um, some of which is only kind of tangentially related to the rest of the movie. Um, hmm. And it it means that it does have all of these ideas, but like you say, it often just raises them and immediately discards them. And so it it sometimes can't like quite make up its mind what sort of movie it is. Like, is it, is it stoners in space or is it the one where you have to talk to the creepy dementia corpse, corpse in the fridge on a on a five second timer before everyone's blown up um yeah <laughs> turns out it's actually both of those and they're not always compatible yeah and it's um 
I mean, it's it's not. Let's say it's it's not my favorite movie, but it is one that I'm very very fond of, and it's very much. Um, you know, as with all these things, you know, you find the, the notebook rather than the final draft, like you get this great sense of, of experimentation and um, exploration. What can we achieve with this? And I would love to see the original short short film. Like I'd be fascinated by that. The, one of the scenes that they added was was the scene with the alien, which, you know, if is is very, very funny. Um, and and really quite clever and creepy all at once and has a genuine sense of um, like high stakes around it which is you know is quite an impressive thing for for a bolt-on but lots you know it lots of it doesn't like it doesn't work as well as you as you would want it to and there is that real sense of I don't want to say missed opportunity but potential you know like bits of it really drag the sound quality in places is absolute garbage um there there's some real like if you're a stickler for continuity i have really bad news for you <laughs> you're not going to get it here um and and i mean a lot of those things were uh again kind of artifacts of the process i was reading hmm. that one of the characters um i think it's the one who's who who's lost his mind and just spends all of his time in the bubble staring at the stars had an incredibly strong accent so they couldn't understand what he was saying so everything that he says is dubbed despite the fact that everybody else is recorded on set so whenever he talks there's like a noticeable difference in sound quality yeah, which they almost get away with on grounds that he spends his entire time in a hermetically sealed bubble. So you could. So again, it's things that that, that don't work, but kind of do. And it's, you know, it's a mess, but it's a lovable mess. And it's. I was going to say sense of opportunities missed, but it's not because so many of those opportunities are picked up in other films which are less rough, and you can almost see who has watched this film and the bits that they took from it. And I think that in that instance, it's such a a unique sort of cultural artifact. You know, every time I watch it, I pick up something, you know, something different. There's always something you go, I've seen that in in this film or, oh, wow. Yeah. That's where they got the idea for X. And that, you know, it's it's almost like that that line about the Velvet Underground that not many people went to see them live, but everyone who did went and formed a band. It's like not everyone has seen Dark Star, but the vast majority of people who saw it when it came out went on to make better movies. I think that's a, a an excellent point to continue. We're around about at the halfway mark, though, so we're going to take a brief break and we'll be back right after this. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app.
And we're back. You're listening to Reserved Recommendations. This is a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi Onga Tangata o Manawatu. We talk about great trash and problematic faves, and some of the greatest trash I have watched in some time. Um, I'm talking to Ross Palethorpe about Dark Star, um, which is uh, James Cameron and... No! not James Cameron. <laughs> See, I did it again. I said at the start I was going to do it. Um, but we can, John but Carpenter. we can talk about why that's a really like sensible mm. mess, actually. I think like coming in. Uh, to, so it's John Carpenter's first movie. And I'm not a massive John Carpenter fan. Like off, off the bat, I, I'm not like I, if someone puts a, one of his films on, I will sit and watch it and I'll probably enjoy it. But um, we need to talk about The Alien. And Alien. And yeah, Aliens, absolutely. and therefore James Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess as a starting off point, um, one of the things that I saw, because I did some reading around as well, was that the part of the concept of Alien, like the movie Alien, um, hmm. came from that Dan O'Bannon, who did the design um, and most of the, the conceit for the sequence in this movie with the Alien, which for reference, looks like a beach ball with duck feet. Um, it, he had aimed for that to be purely comedic, he thought, but instead people seemed like creeped out by quite, quite a lot of it. And so mm. he kind of went, all right, well, maybe I can't play this for laughs, but what if I lean into the bits of it that, that are quite threatening? Yeah. So right at the start, there's this discussion around, are they going to find intelligent life? And the pinback, um, you know, seems quite keen on this. And the other, the other two members of the crew, Doolittle, who is this really quite nihilistic um, second in command, who, looking at this from a trauma-informed perspective, has not really recovered from the death of, of the commander. And Boiler, who honestly is just every... 1950s 1960s film bully like he's got that real um like looks like he's gonna smash your head against the locker yeah he's got thing. real meathead he's got like the does he have a mullet or just long hair he's got the the like the fu manchu mustache like just the mustache yeah. but no beard but it comes down past his chin um he yeah. spends his whole time like playing with knives and smoking and that's about it yeah, he looks like a roadie for the Grateful Dead or something. Mm, mm, and, or, um, or less less like charming than the Grateful Dead. Like Yeah, yeah, he's a, so he's a real sort of uh, he's the closest I think they get to an antagonist and that mm. he's just like he he just is a bit of a shit. Like he's only got like two lines of dialogue I think and both of those are fighting with Pinback who's played by Dan O'Bannon actually. So um but they have found an alien and or possibly aliens but the 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 one central one which is this mascot which is the most ridiculous looking thing and it really passed the 6-year-old test. Like my son thought that was absolutely hilarious. Um he just for for what is a large beach ball with duck feet. It has it has personality, like it's got a it it's got quite a, a malevolent cheeky streak, and it plays out as this two hander between the beach ball and pinback as it as it attacks him and then escapes around the ship, and it's like again it's really fascinating seeing you can see that what they were trying to go for in terms of this sort of slapstick three stooges style like that it it takes his stepladder away from him and it tickles him to try and make him fall off something. But it's also 
an alien creature that seems quite malevolent. And it's, again, everything that's funny in this film also has this slight edge of, like, quite creeping dread to it. And you can see it. it's not a huge leap from beach ball with duck feet to H.R. Geiger phallic nightmare. Yeah, yeah. It's just, what if we paid, like, uh, a scary sex creep to design this monster for us? Um, (laughs) But then we did it again. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But, but, I mean, you made made the, like, the point that that it's quite malicious, because it's not, I guess... What what we've established about the world of the movie is that it's these people are stuck on a spaceship which is falling to bits. The captain was killed because his seat his seat back blew up um, because the the force field that protects them when they set the bombs off failed somehow. Um, so we know that like sudden death is quite a possibility. Everything is falling to bits, and what the beach ball is doing is like. It's trying to throw Pinback down a down a literal elevator shaft, and he spends like a bunch of time hanging by one hand while a lift comes down to crush him. Like it's if you'd set up that the world was like Buster Keaton world to start with, th- then you could yeah. play it for laughs a bit more easily. But because we've we've already established that things are quite lethal, it's it's actually kind of hair raising. Yeah, right, and it's this. Um... The film has a real edge to it, a real edge. And it's, um, it was, inter- again, I didn't intend to watch it with a six-year-old, but I, I did. And he he thought the alien was very fun. He thought it was like a Mr. Bean-esque type thing. But then he doesn't have, he's not seeing this idea of like this, this, air, this aura of malevolence. And it was really quite interesting um, bits where I thought, well, I even still, like at my, you know, as a proper grown up, I still got that sense of like, this is quite unsettling. Am, am I, is he going to have nightmares at this at night? And, and he really didn't. But then the alien is killed in a, in a very, very funny way, which is, um, you know, pin, pin back ends up like getting a tranquilizer. Why they have a tranquilizer gun on the Dark Star, no idea. Um, and there's this sort of martial music and the point of view shot as he goes and gets this very serious looking tranquilizer gun and, and fires it at the alien who of course promptly explodes around the hull of this ship, like a balloon that's had the end let off with accompanying soundtrack, which is pure, like it's just very, very silly. And, um, you know, it's, it's just such an interest, like the, the, the tonal end, like the tone throughout this movie is so interesting, but, a genuinely funny moment um and it sort of brings the film but i think that's one of the closest bits where the film gets to that sort of stoners in space bit is that um you know uh what we're saying about it like being blazing saddles in space almost like it's it's funny it's slapstick and the rest of the film is is yeah is really quite dark in places yeah yeah and 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 dark in that um here's a bunch of guys who've like looked into the abyss and, uh, and are trying to work out what to do about it. Because one of the other things that you get of Doolittle, the guy who's, who's been forced to become first in command is the other sequence you get aside from him lamenting his inability to surf is he builds like a, an organ out of water bottles and you get a sequence of him just playing music to nobody um, with this thing that he's meticulously constructed. <laughs> um, 
and it's, yeah. it's kind of poignant, you know, like he's this guy who's all of his interactions with everybody else are quite brusque and he doesn't have time for trying to explore the universe or, or any kind of enlightenment. He just wants to find the next thing to blow up. But when he's by himself, he's, you know, sad about not surfing and playing music to yeah. no one. And Yeah. Like he's probably, you know, Pinback is the, the, the played, like the closest you get to a played for last character. Even then he's a case of mistaken identity. Who's basically serving life on a ship like having and doesn't and doesn't need to be there and shouldn't be there um doolittle is as i said he's the he's quite he's quite a deep character we get very little of him but what we get hints at at something at something more like these two scenes the one the, the this really poignant scene with this and it's and it's a piece of crap you know there's so many other films you could imagine where this little um water bottle organ would look very impressive and would sound wonderful and there would be this oh he's a musician and he's not he plays it like a child it looks like you know it's it, it looks like it would fall apart at any moment but you can see how how much it means to him to have this creative outlet and it, yeah it's 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 quite thoughtful on a, on a number of levels and i think we really see that um that sort of hidden depth thing sort of really pulls together at the end where the, the captain in his ramblings suggests that they have to teach the bomb for not like the, the, the philosophical concept of phenomenology in order to prevent it from going off. And I can imagine a hundred and other movies where it would be phenomenology. What's that? And there would be an explainer. And instead say this character do little, knows what that is and goes out and debates like Cartesian understanding of self with an AI with minutes to spare on the clock. And it's, you know, this real show don't tell aspect of, of a film that didn't have a lot of money to show a lot of stuff with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, just thinking about the, the not having a lot of money to, to show stuff, um I was struck by the way in which a lot of the the interface design of the the things that they're working with constantly mm. um all of that stuff was made out of like ice cube trays and yogurt bottles and stuff yeah. with just like bits of plastic with lights underneath but it really defines that like seventies sci-fi control panel thing where you just, you have like a bank of lit buttons and you are supposed to understand that the character knows what they do, even though they're like indistinguishable, they just push them in a sequence and it's very impressive. Right. Like, <laughs> right. But, but that, you know, that, that continues on to star Wars. Like that's what the controls of, of spaceships in star Wars look like. That's what the controls of spaceships in alien look like. They're like yeah. big square lit up buttons. And it's not a hundred a hundred kilometers away from from what the control panels in a Saturn V command module looked like. You know, these were, and I think that's it. Like these guys are not incompetent. Like there's not a sense of of like bumbling idiots. You see them in that initial sequence. They are dropping a thermostellar device into a, you know into a planet, and everything goes smoothly or as well as could be expected. You know, these are for all of their foibles and all the fact that there's these interpersonal dramas and, and sort of deep psychological issues, they're getting the job done. And it's, you know, in a way, 
if you really wanted to probably dig far deeper into it than, than, than John Carpenter ever intended. You know, you could talk about it as a bit of a, a love story to sort of blue collar workers who just go and get shit done at great personal sacrifice and um, with increasing budget cuts and an uncaring um, government. I mean, I mean, you say taking it further than than John Carpenter intended. I don't know about that actually, because it it feels so on the nose with those aspects that it has. Like the fact that mm. they choose to frame it at the start with the guy saying, "We hear your concerns. You guys are doing great work. We're not going to help you in any way." Um, like that seems so on the nose that I I can't imagine it as anything other than deliberate that they've taken that tone um and and you're right like these these guys bicker or space out except when they're in the control panel where they're absolutely professional until st- stuff goes completely yeah. um haywire at the end of the movie but like they they go exactly through the sequence they know exactly what they're doing um the even the bit where they're like bickering over the next place to go and blow something up it's done with like oh i found you this no that's no good i want to blow something up you know like yeah. it's yeah even the even talby who the the character of talby who sits like say sits in this bubble the whole time and is staring off into space and is looking for for phenomena he gets the signal that something has gone badly wrong with this, you know, with the system that will drop the bomb and, and takes action and takes quite like concrete. He knows what he's going to do. He reads this and, and, and leaps into action. So, you know, you, I mean, I did have this coming at the height of seventies and it it gained real cult following. Um, And it was this idea of it was hippies in space. And I think the tagline for it was, you know, expect to take like a trip or whatever, kind of really like leveraging off that, that 2001 aspect. But even so it's, it's not, they are all doing their job. They all have that sense of self-preservation. They all clearly feel quite deeply about each other. So yeah, I think you're right. Like Carpenter is making a good point here about, about class, but I think there's also a point you could argue here around masculinity. Like these guys, do care about each other even you know on some level even though they find being in each other's presence almost intolerable as a result of being together for so long you know, like they're all reading like the looks like the same five magazines and um like really run like what else would you what what would you talk to the same four people about after 20 years what would you say yeah, no, absolutely. And and you know, they've got the same five magazines, the computer um does like a little for your listening pleasure here's and then they Mm. play some music but you've got to imagine that the computer's got like a bank of 20 songs maybe because it's 1974 (laughs) (laughs) they're all individual um 45s that are stacked on a spindle somewhere or something like that yeah um and there's no and and there's no option either there's no would you like to listen to this it's for your listening pleasure we're going to put this on and it like honestly like yeah the music the music selection is not is not great um there's a very funny scene where where for absolutely no apparent reason the the computer starts playing the barber of seville which is very very funny um but i think like there's a bit there where speaking of talby they're like someone says oh what what is talby's first name and Doolittle just sort of looks and has that moment of what's what's my first name and it's quite a again that poignancy of of that loss of self 
to this mission that nobody seems to care about anyway. Yeah, there's some real moments in there, which I mean, the, the, none of the, the actors involved, like there's a lot of, if you look at the Wikipedia page again, like not many of the people involved in it beyond like O'Bannon and, and Carpenter and, and a couple of others, but like the, a lot of the actors in it do not have their own page, did not really appear in anything else, but they put in a really good performance given, the, again, the constraints of what they were working with. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to talk about the computer for a second as well, um, because I think I think a thing that I found very interesting about the way that they conceive of the computer system is, and it's after two thousand and one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost like a reply to Hal, um, in yeah. that they have this computer who is the computer can talk to the bombs. It can talk to the crew, and it's aware of what's going on in the ship, but it can't do anything about it. So yeah. you, what you have is this this other... It's almost like another entity that's trapped in the same situation of, like, this laser has failed. It's going to cause this problem. Someone needs to go and fix it. But it, it can't take any action. All it can do is just talk to these guys who are all to one degree yeah. or another, either too busy or, or incapacitated um, yeah. and try and get them to do something about the fact that it's falling to bits. Which which is a fascinating, like, larger theme of this this film. So I think we're far enough in that we can start talking about the philosophy at the end. So that I said, the, the captain says, you've got to go out and teach you got to teach the bomb phenomenology. You've got to go and talk to the bomb about what what is its concept of reality. How does it know that the instructions that it has received is, are, are real? And you've got four minutes to do it. And so off off he goes, like off Doolittle goes, and he has this incredible conversation with this bomb about how do you know, you know, how do you know that you exist? Big question. How do you know, like? And are you are you sure that this is real? Are you sure this is just electrical signals that you were receiving? How do you know that those are real? And and when you think of, as you said, like the the computer is this AI, this organism that has that has awareness but has no agency. You know, it can tell you what's wrong. It can't do anything about it. It can um, it can play you the Barber of Seville, but it can't help you if you are stuck in a lift. Um, and it's such a, you know, these guys know that things are wrong, can't do anything about it. They know that they need radiation shielding, but no one's help isn't, isn't coming. And, you know, like such a, a strong sense of, again, this phenomenally, what's real, what's not? How do we, like, how much agency do we really have? And and I think the, the really, j- just such a, a, a climax where the bomb starts to, to, talk you know it's given more instructions it's gone back into the bomb bay to think about what it wants to do and at this point only boiler and pinback are left on the ship due to an accident talby and, and doolittle are flying off into space um again very 2001 a space odyssey and the bomb starts to quote genesis and it goes from this really clipped sort of well, now they're coming into the races, and that's it's number five, and and suddenly like takes on this intonation, and that again is a callback to um, Apollo eight, where they were circling the moon at Christmas time, and um, I cannot remember which which astronaut it was starts starts to read to the people of America in the wider world from the Book of Genesis, and you know that's a, that's quite a profound 
you know, and 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 then is is says let there be light, and you've got these two bickering guys on this who suddenly have this realization as they start to hear this line from Genesis that they are that they are dead, that this is that the bomb has made its decision, and that's quite because at that right up until that point you're not sure what's going to happen to these guys. You, you know, we're we're brought up on this Hollywood idea that everyone's going to make it home or something's going to happen, and the bomb goes off and the dark star explodes. Yeah, the the closest you get to closure is that that Talby floats off to join possibly sentient stars. Yeah, possibly the asteroids. And and Doolittle finally gets a bit of debris that looks enough like a surfboard that he can surf his way into dying and re-entry instead of just falling. Yeah, which is, again, a real... um, when you think about the number of ideas that are picked up and put down in this film to have with the closest thing you have to a protagonist choose to, to burn up on re-entry in a way that reminds him of home is, you know, it's not, that's not that, you know, we're thinking, I'm thinking about the film gravity all of a sudden and what it has to say about, about death in space. Like so many films that have dying in space as being this absolute like nightmarish horror, which it is, you know, all the, all the way to die in space, not one of them. Um, but yeah, again, it's it would be a, a couple of sort of um, note changes, maybe a different soundtrack on that, and that would be extreme, like very sad, very upsetting, very distressing. And instead, it's played to this really quite jaunty country and western number, um, which I get written by Carpenter and just sung by a friend of his from university, which. When if you watch this film, will be an earworm for the next twenty years. I'm really sorry about it. Yeah, no, it it'll just eat its way into your brain. Um, you you made a good point that this movie's kind of like the like the Velvet Underground. Like it, it has this enduring influence, and I um, it reminded me specifically of a couple of fairly recent movies. I mean, recent compared to the seventies, at least. Have you seen um Duncan Jones's Moon? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I have. It reminded me quite a lot of that, of the, you know, the kind of blue collar guy stuck on a space station by himself. And also there was, I'm not sure if it was like a Netflix original movie or not, but there was this movie, called, a very low budget movie called Prospect about. No, a, I haven't seen that one. Well, that's, it might still be on Netflix or it might have gone somewhere like Canopy. It's about this guy hmm. and his daughter and they, they do the spectacularly clever idea of, um, they're on a verdant forest world where they've landed to harvest this gum stuff and the air is incredibly poisonous. So basically in post, they put a whole bunch of pollen into the air to explain why it's poisonous. But the rest of the time they just, they can, they can be incredibly cheap because they're wandering around just a forest in, in breath, like just (laughs) plastic masks. So they don't, they don't have to, you know, mess around with, with, but they, are stuck on on this world in the middle of nowhere doing this incredibly dangerous contract work about like extracting resin out of the native trees and if you yeah. do it wrong it'll like burn away in the atmosphere and become valueless and it it's um it does the same trick of of uh giving you these very competent characters who are stuck in this awful impossible situation because in this case, it's just nakedly capitalism, like they're, I think, yeah. indentured workers on this planet. But um, yeah, it, it gave me very similar vibes. Um, it w- 
it's like Casablanca. You know, you watch Casablanca and you think this is very derivative because you realize that you've been watching yeah. all these other things <laughs> that were derivative of Casablanca. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the big, I first watched this, my dad got it for me on VHS when I was a teenager. I'd never heard of John Carpenter, no idea. And he went, I would like to sit and watch this film with you because this is something that I like saw when it, like close to when it came out. And so there's a real strong bond there with this film, that real sort of core memory watching this with my dad and him. We did not have a conversation about phenomenology or anything else, but I remember him tell it hooting with laughter at the alien. And um, it, it's also, it, it was the film that caused, that created um, the TV series Red Dwarf, which is also a very enduring um, sort of cultural artifact of the 80s and 90s and was certainly a key part of, of my growing up. You can see why I'm such a nerd now. Um, but this idea, again, this like blue collar space um, that people like ultimately all of our big dreams of the 50s and 60s of the nuclear and the space age just will come down to being a bunch of guys who are not getting paid enough working in shitty conditions with no union and it's it's that puncturing of this dream that we had and now you know 2023 we're talking about going back into space we've got elon musk um talking about spacex and oh we're all going to go into space and i think part of the reason why we have such a jaundiced eye on this now and we're so cynical is because we know it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's going to be union busting on the moon. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, in, in parallel, um, when does, when does the original series of Star Trek start? Um, Because, because that's what, late seventies? Oh, the original Star Trek. I don't know. That's sixties, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. So actually, that would be contem- that would be contemporaneous. But it 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 yeah. carried the like um, rainbow coalition of of uh, glorious space liberalism um, vision, kind of on as long as it possibly could. Yeah, yeah. So that was I've just checked nineteen nineteen sixty six. So you've got um, you've got Star. So you've got Star Trek. You've got 2001 a space odyssey you have this um yeah luxury space communism basically which is quite a you know that's a challenging idea for the 60s you know you got mccarthy and huac and everything else going on there and and the biggest series is all around um hey what about if we did away with money and um everyone you know and we you live could in a post kiss a black lady if you wanted to if you really wanted to or an alien mm. uh, why not both <laughs> One of them breaks no laws in certain states and one of them does. Um, and then, yeah, counter to that, you have you have Dark Star, you've got Silent Running, you've got um, Star Wars comes out and then that just completely clears the table for space as being this really dirty, grimy thing. And it's really, it's rare now that you see science fiction, which is the shiny plastic um, that weightless and i use that phrase like advisedly um concept of space i think we've as a culture we've become quite cynical about it doesn't matter if the view outside your window is of an industrial estate or um the rings of the rings of saturn you're going to be underpaid you're going to hate your boss and you're going to dislike your co-workers yep yep and and it and it transcends cultures you know the if you think about the most influential anime for people who don't watch anime about flying around in spaceships it's cowboy bebop which mm. iconically starts 
every single episode with the the space bounty hunters starving because they don't have enough money to buy food um and then you know the the standard arc is they go and try and do a job it goes badly they end the episode starving because they don't have any money to buy food <laughs> yeah i mean we could i think we could spend a whole extra hour talking about all of the different influences you know just thinking about it like there's you could say that blade runner has a bit like this idea of of like real capitalism come down really hard and a, a real sort of like concept of a class system and ai and everything else um firefly is another one you know <laughs> confederates in space uh you know there's real like that just again we've become very cynical to the concept of what space can offer and rightly so yeah yeah and, i mean rightly so why why would you expect the boss to be different from the boss because the boss is in space um yeah here comes the space boss just like the old boss um but yeah, so like I say, I'm, I'm very, very fond of it. And I, there was a, a moment sitting watching this film and, and, and my kid going, you know, what are we watching? And I said, oh, this was a film that, that I watched with my dad and his excitement about, and now, and now you're watching it with me. And that's the first time that he has really understood this concept of like the intergenerational culture thing. Like his eyes got kind of big when he was like, you watch this when you were young. It's like, not quite six, buddy, but... Like the, the there's something quite um, there's something quite nice about the first time that he has that awareness of something I think is important enough for my childhood to show him, and it's this grimy, cheap <laughs> student movie by the guy that did the thing. Uh, I will not be showing him the thing. No, for quite some. No, I would I would give that a minimum of ten years probably. <laughs> yeah, I'll let him find that one out on his own. But um, yeah, no, this was I. It's it's now available on YouTube, which was great because we had this discussion about doing this show, and I thought like I had this on VHS twenty five years ago. Um, I have no idea if it's in print now or or whatever. And then oh, it's on YouTube with some slight edits and um, quit like it it sort of gained a bit of a boost because apparently Quentin Tarantino like a year or so ago oh, went on podcast and said this was an nice. absolute masterpiece. Oh well, there you go. Well, Quentin's useful for the odd thing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, look, thank you for coming on. Moments. Thank you for coming on and talking about this movie. I, I probably wouldn't have watched it if you if you hadn't said it was a thing. Um, and I'm very glad I did because, um, as we said, it it is like getting to see the first draft of all of these other things that that are just so iconic if you like science fiction at all. Um, yeah, that was, that was amazingly cool. Um, so I like to do two things by way of, by way of finishing off. The first is, do you have any other recommendations for things that people could, could watch? I guess, I mean, I already mentioned Moon and Prospect, which I, which I would thoroughly recommend both of them. If you like the idea of like capitalism is a bad time in space. Um, and also a little bit of like extra sci-fi jiggery pokery. Um, Moon has a very good like awful twist, and Prospect mm. does. Prospect I would recommend as like uh, an excellent example of doing spectacular world building with very little. Like every every new element that comes into that movie kind of tells you something about the wider world that makes you want to like go and read a book about it and find out what's going on. Yeah. I think um, 
In terms of movies, certainly, I think it's it's weird because if you have liked the other films that we have talked about, which are a far more important part of the cultural canon, you will get something from Dark Star. Like it, there's some, as you said, there's something quite thrilling seeing where this stuff originated from. I think in terms of of some of the deeper themes around around class and around industrialization and rampant capitalism and um, the starfish trilogy by peter watts and also his seminal novel blind sight um highly recommend blind sight as a as a science fiction standalone novel like the guy's um ability to put these really deep challenging quite upsetting themes in ripping like science fiction yarns is is unparalleled he's he's very very good um blind sight certainly for what it says about um concepts of like consciousness searching for aliens um the realities of even being on like the most advanced starships imaginable is is superb got me thinking about things that i had not previously considered and the starfish um Starfish and the other two, the other two books in that series, um, proper capitalist hellscape, massive content advisories throughout. But if you've got a stomach for it, very, very good. On on that topic, also, um, I would recommend the book Walk Away by Cory Doctorow, which is um, a post climate change but also post scarcity disaster novel. Um, basically, climate change has ravaged the earth the gap between rich and poor has become unsurmountable, but also there are nanomachines. And so what happens is that people will just wander off into the blasted waste and create experimental societies um, to see Mm. if there's an alternative way of living. And because that's very threatening to the society that the unfathomably wealthy want to keep maintaining, they will send the cops after you to murder you if you do this. Um, and it's, it's very Cory Doctorow. It, yeah. it is very to- Cory Doctorow. But uh, similarly, like Capitalist Hellscape, very fascinating meditations on AI. There's a whole bit about using AI to mimic people who are dead. Um, and at one point they do that with someone that they think is dead, but it turns out that she's just been kidnapped. They rescue her after like 20 years and her actual personality and the AI copy of her personality absolutely hate each other and fight like cats in a sack every time they're in contact. And it's wow. just like all of these. Yeah. Big, big brain yeah. inside out sci-fi. Yeah. And that's what you want. And again, you know, it's interesting the the depths of themes that you can get from this little, little student movie that could. Um, and I think as, film sci-fi gets increasingly marvelized and cinematic universized it's it's really felt like it's really books and 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 novels now where we're starting to see that um you know the other example which isn't quite like speaking of science fiction novels to recommend obviously sasha stronach's the dawn hounds um for a good bit of new zealand sci-fi and again that concept like what if what if massive high concept science fiction but also people are terrible and like the system of the state continues to grind us down. So the last thing I like to do is give you an opportunity to plug your shit. Um, do you have things that you want the internet to know about? 
<laughs> oh yeah. Um, so actually, in my in my day job, um, I am a counselor and trauma therapist. Um, a thing that the characters in this movie could have used in space. <laughs> oh yeah, like I say, there were layers. Um, you can catch me on Twitter at Ross these days. Um, I talk a lot about um, sort of you know gender equity. Um, I try to drop in a little bit of mental health support and things in there as well. Um, and you can, uh, my website is uh, ross-palethorpe.pagexl.com. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Russ. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irurangi o Tangata o Manawatu. The show was produced and presented by me, Hugh Dingwall, and I also composed our theme music. It's called Sack Jazz, and you can find it at wolfboy.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not go ahead and share it with a friend? You can find the last 10 episodes at npr.nz slash show slash reserved, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want an episode older than that, try searching for Reserved Recommendations on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Objective Realty, or you can follow the show on Facebook. And finally, Two People's Radio is a non-profit community access station. If you like this or any other piece of their fine audio programming, why not fling them a dollar or two? You can go to npr.nz slash donate for more information on how to do that. 